All right, let's pray together, and we're going we're gonna to study God's Word. Father, thank you for the time together this evening to, to eat together, even though we weren't able to, to sing those songs together, just the opportunity to sit down and, and visit and uh, take a deep breath during the middle of the week, uh, that this would be a chance to, to refocus and to refresh, and uh, conversations beforehand and afterward would be acts of worship. Uh, we, we worship as we encourage one another and support one another, pray for one another individually when we gather together. And so thank you for a church that's committed to do that. We do pray for the marriage conference on Saturday evening, knowing there are uh, much more than half the couples signed up aren't a part of our church and several with no church affiliation. God, we pray that this would be a time for them to see your love in action, that, that they, we know that marriage is uh, a portrayal of the gospel, and there would be people on Saturday night who, for the first time ever, would see their marriage as a reflection of the gospel, and they might turn to you for salvation. They might see that the greatest need they have is to, to have a relationship with you through Christ, and God, I pray that you would, would use that time, use this in, in our church, we pray for the marriages and the families in our church, God. We pray for the families who are hurting, who have been through so much difficulty. We know that emotionally and physically, with everything going on, you just get tired after a while. And God, I pray that they would be strengthened, they would be encouraged to endure. Father, we pray for those that are recovering from surgery, for those that are dealing with financial trouble and job trouble, uh, that you would support and encourage them as well through, through all that's happening. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. If you didn't get a copy of, of the notes for tonight, it's on the back table. Feel free to, to grab one. We're going to look at the end of Joshua tonight. Joshua 22 through 24, which is a section that fits, fits together really well. So Joshua 22 to 24. Next week is... Ash Wednesday, uh, next Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and so we'll talk about that and the beginning of Lent leading up to Easter time. Uh, Ash Wednesday, where we came from in New Orleans, just meant that Mardi Gras was the day before, and so that was the, that was the big indicator where we had come from, but there's a lot more to Ash Wednesday and Lent than just following Mardi Gras, and so we're going we're gonna to talk about that some next Wednesday night. We have not moved to the point of actually doing the imposition of ashes. So if anybody is looking for the ashes on the forehead, we don't provide that at Emmaus. I know there are churches that do that for, for good reasons. Um, I, I'm not going to have any ashes for you next Wednesday, but we will talk about Ash Wednesday and Lent and preparing our hearts for, uh, for Easter. Okay, before we jump into 22 to 24, I want to do a quick review of the State Evangelism Conference that I didn't get to at the time, the end of the time last week. I put a couple of notes there on your, uh, on your sheet that I took away from the Evangelism Conference that was last week at Southern Hills. The first is just that reminder, when it comes to sharing the good news of Jesus with other people, we need to be urgent and we need to be intentional. Urgent in the saying that this really does matter. This is not something that you tack on to the Christian life. This is 
core to what it means to be impacted by the gospel of Christ is that we share that with others. We're seeking to make disciples. And so there's an urgency about that should, that should drive the way we live our lives. And being intentional. Sometimes it happens by accident, but more so it's being intentional with our time, being intentional with our lives, being intentional where God has placed us. Sometimes we'll use the phrasing here, live, where you live, learn, work, and play. That where you live, learn, work, and play is where God has placed you to be able to share the gospel. And if we're not intentional about this, and I speak from my own, my own experience, my own life, if I'm not intentional about it, very quickly life just goes by and you don't share, you don't share the gospel. And probably the most important point that I didn't actually put on here but goes with number one is I, f- I feel the weight personally that this type of living, sharing the gospel, it has to begin with us as pastors. And so I have to begin to look at my own life. It's easy to spend all your time around church people, and you go home, and you close the garage door, and you spend your time with your family, which is a good thing. I value that. I take, we're making disciples in our home of our own kids. Uh, but a pastor doing the work of evangelists shapes that for the church. And so I've had to take a look at my own life and how, how I spend time and what I'm doing. And so I want you to know this is something I'm thinking about a lot uh, and spurred on by what happened last week. Remembering point B there, that evangelism is multifaceted. There are a lot of tools. You may have been to training and you learned an acronym or you learned something to use. What we're finding more and more, and I I say this carefully, it's not so much about the particular acronym you use or the particular image you use. Just use something that communicates the gospel uh, to people. Just open up your Bible and and share a scripture with somebody. There's a lot of tools. Some people say door-to-door is not working anymore. Some people say door-to-door is still absolutely the way to go. And from the conference last week, people said yes. (laughs) Just just do it. Like if if go door-to-door, the Lord uses that. You don't want to go door-to-door and you want to meet people in the coffee shop, meet somebody in the coffee shop. Uh, It's not either or. It's just... Do something. Share, share the gospel with people from a foundation of prayer. Uh, point C is interesting. People are willing to have gospel conversations. Less so, less so people are willing to hear your canned presentation. Sometimes they will. Sometimes they will. More so, they'll have a conversation about Jesus or they'll have a conversation about the gospel. Even people who are turned off to church, are generally still curious about spiritual conversations. And so you can have a dialogue, you can have a conversation with somebody that becomes an open door. The goal, obviously, isn't just to have a conversation, it's to share the gospel, but that gospel conversation opens the door, which opens up an exciting possibility for us as a church. Coming up in August, I know that's a long way down the road, but, but Jim is working on this. Coming up in August, a gentleman named Alvin Reed who is one of our Southern Baptist uh, evangelism professors, he wrote a book. um, Jim, what's the name of the book? Share Jesus Without Freaking Out. Some of you went through uh, kind of a mini class with Jim about this. Alvin's going to be here at Emmaus. Uh, He's going to speak here. He's going to lead some training opportunities for us. And this is some of the best material I've seen about just getting us started talking to other people um, about the gospel. So we're really going to be driving that when we get closer to, 
to August that, that Alvin Reed will be here and we'll be working through that material. But people want to have gospel conversations. Um, D, I say multi-generational there. When we think about sharing the gospel, a lot of times we're thinking about kids um, and we're thinking about teenagers, which the statistics for when people respond to the gospel change dramatically after the age of 14. 14 and below, it's somewhere around the 83% mark. 83% of people who trust Christ do so before the age of 14. Um, we're, not, we're not slaves to, to statistics, but you can definitely learn from them. Um, and so that, that matters. My favorite breakout session, though, that I went to at the evangelism conference was about sharing the gospel with older adults. And it was especially focused on assisted living, health centers, nursing homes, homebound. Just in that season of life, as people are reflecting on their life, thinking about the meaning of life, thinking about all the things they've done, and now here I am, there's an openness to the gospel. Uh, and Chris Findlay, who works with Baptist Village Communities, He's one of the chapels with the Baptist Retirement Homes of Oklahoma. He led this breakout session, and it, it was fantastic. I, I came away really encouraged, really challenged. What does that mean for our church? Uh, I think I've told you this before, but I feel like for Emmaus, one of the things that the Lord would do is that we would have baptism and salvation and evangelism break out among older adults, that it's not this is something that happens just for kids, but that this is happening across, across generations. Not to mention the demographics of our country as you're having a larger population of people from 65 and older. Uh, 80 and older is the fastest growing segment of, of our population. And so you have that group of people who are desperate, they're lonely, desperate for conversations. He said that over 60% of the people in Oklahoma, they call them health centers as opposed to nursing homes now, but over 60% of people in Oklahoma nursing homes had no one visit them in the last month. Um, and so you think about just the, the loneliness that, that sets in there, but the desire to talk about life, to talk about the meaning of life. And so I'm going to try hard to see if we can get Chris here at Emmaus because the way he presents evangelism and ministry opportunities to older generations is, is really remarkable. And that's all, pretty much what I've thought about since the evangelism conference was that point. Finally, uh, the last point is, is we're always careful not to view church growth or disciple-making apart from evangelism. Um, so we've talked about this before at Emmaus, but there's no such thing as church growth if someone was not baptized and became a follower of Jesus. One person moving from one church to the other is not church growth. It's, sometimes there's a place for that. There's a time for that for sure. But church growth is about making disciples, seeing people come, come to know Jesus. And that was a good reminder. Uh, Hans Dilbeck is going to be the new uh, executive director for Oklahoma Baptist. He cautioned young pastors in, in my grouping about being more focused on uh, drawing a congregation than we were on evangelizing. Um, sometimes it can be about who can draw the biggest crowd and who can have the best church, not who's sharing Jesus the most. And we've got to be really careful that, that we're not more focused on how can my church be really great versus I just really want people to know about Jesus. Um, and that's a, that's a good reminder for sure. So is evangelism easy? Uh, some people have that gifting. Some people have that drive. A lot of us just, we trip over ourselves and our 
stomach gets in knots, and we think of all the reasons why we can't do this, and nobody wants to hear about Jesus, and then we forget, oh wait, God is always at work. The thing that gets me over the hump every time is I'm not selling anything. I hate to sell things. Like I'm, I'm the worst salesman on the, on the planet. Evangelism is not selling anything. Evangelism is God is already at work in that situation, and he's called me to go there and give good news to now, there's bad news that goes with the gospel for sure, that you need the good news, but you're going there knowing it's not you making this happen, that God's already at work, and that's what sets us free to be able to have, to have those conversations. So uh, just continue to pray about how God has positioned you to share the gospel, how we can do that well here at Emmaus. If you have ideas, I am wide open uh, to, to, those, to those ideas of what that what that looks like. But I just wanted you to know that these are the things I've been thinking about. This is kind of what I picked up and learned from that evangelism conference, and I wanted to be able to share that with you. So, all right, let's go to Joshua chapter 22. Joshua 22, starting in verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side, speaking of the east side of the Jordan. Only be careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all of his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Okay, really quickly, a couple of points about that. These two and a half tribes were given the land on the east side of the Jordan River, but the leaders, the warriors from the group, went over to the west side and helped with the conquest. Now that the land has primarily been conquered for the most part, they're getting ready to go back to the east side, back to their land. They're, the book of Joshua breaks down into four parts. Enter the land, take the land, possess the land, live in the land. <laughs> so we've entered the land, we've taken it, We've possessed it. You've gotten your territory. Now how do you prepare to live in it? 22 to 24 is that last section of Joshua. So it frames it. The way that we know that it fits together as a section is because 22, 23, and 24 all begin with the same idea and, and even the, uh, a similar word. If you look at 22.1, it says, At that time Joshua summoned it talks about these three tribes. So he's, he's calling an assembly of the three tribes. Go over to chapter 23. After a, or a long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officials, so he's, or officers. So he's calling another assembly. You go over to 24. Joshua gathered, 24 verse 1, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. Now, depending on your translation, it may not have the word summoned, but it's the same word showing up each time. 22, 23, 24 are three chapters 
representing three assemblies that Joshua calls together at the end of his life to prepare the people to be able to live in the land. So we know that these three chapters are, are meant to stand together there as, as those three sections. Uh, one point in here at the beginning of 22 is that Joshua commends the people for what they've done before he commands them to do what comes next. Sometimes, if we're not careful, all we're doing is what, telling people what to do next as opposed to celebrating what they have done. Um, that could be reflective of your parenting skills. That could be reflective of your coaching skills. That could be reflective of your employment skills uh, at work. But when you're always telling per- somebody to do the next thing and you never commend what they've done, you run the risk of it's always about doing what you said and not about celebrating something that's been done. And so it's interesting here that Joshua says, you've done all these things. He commends them, and then he says, now go do this. You see that same picture in the book of Philippians in the New Testament. Paul establishes the joy of that relationship he has with the people and then says, do this. First Thessalonians 1 through 3 is primarily Paul commending the people. 4 and 5 says, now do these type of things. And so this is a pattern that God seems to put in the Scripture, you've done this, now go do this. It's just a model that shows up here that Joshua comes back around. It's worth pointing out, especially if you have a management role at work, if you're a parent, grandparent, taking care of kids, if you're a coach, whatever role you have, there's that commend them, then, then command them. Okay, core of 22 is where something really strange happens. 22 verse 7. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. So when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, iron, much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, meaning west of the Jordan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan that's in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Okay, so make sure you understand the story. The tribes on the west heard that these two and a half tribes that have gone back to the east had built an altar And something about them building this altar on the east side has so enraged the other tribes that they're going to make war on their brothers. There's about to have a huge conflict here. 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben, people of Gad, half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead. They sent them Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. Now, we're going to look in a second, but when Phinehas comes to you, he, he's a pretty passionate fellow. Like He comes with a, uh, uh, he used a stake in an earlier story in the New Testament and, and got some work done. And we'll actually look at that here in a second. But that's no random reference that Phineas is, is showing up here. 14, with him came ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans. They came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and the land of Gilead, and said to him, Said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, 
what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon the whole congregation of Israel, and, did, and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Okay, so you find out the reason the western tribes are so concerned is they know that if the eastern tribes have built an unholy altar to the Lord, God's not only going to punish just the tribes on the east, he's going to punish all of Israel because they have rebelled against him and how they worship. You say, well, why are they so concerned? Well, they just saw the situation with Achan take place in Joshua chapter 7, and one man's sin resulted in the death of a lot of different people. They referenced Peor, P-E-O-R, earlier. Turn back to Numbers 25, and you can see we're going to look at a, a story in Numbers and a story in Deuteronomy that help, help make sense of what's happening, on, happening here. But if you go back to Numbers 25, you're going to get the backstory or the first part of the backstory for what's, for what's happening here. Okay, so, so Numbers 25, verse 1. While Israel lived at Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to, be, to Baal at Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them the man of Israel, and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Uh, so you can see how that story from Numbers 25 ties in with what's happening in Joshua 22. One other place to look is Deuteronomy 21. Why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that they built an altar in, a, in another location? Does it? Yeah. Yeah, that's not the right place. I wrote down the wrong spot. Ah. 
but never mind. So the reference I was going for, which is not Deuteronomy 21, but I'll have to figure out where it, where it came from, was the reference of the law where God establishes the place that the people are to worship. And he's very clear when he establishes the place that they're to worship that it's one place, that there are not multiple places for the people to worship. Why is that such a big deal? The reason it's such a big deal is because in Canaanite religion, or really take just about any religion of the ancient world, you had multiple gods. And those multiple gods occupied different holy places. And so for the people of Israel, instead of there being multiple holy places that would represent multiple gods, there was only one place to worship because it represented this unification around one God. So there was no allowance for the people to say, well, you have your God here, you have your God here, you have your God here. There was one place that the people gathered to worship because it represented that they were gathering, they were unified around one God. You take that forward to the church in the New Testament, we wouldn't say that there's one place to gather for worship, but we would say there's only one name to gather under for worship, and that's the name of Jesus. You don't worship this God over here, and this God over here, and this God over here, that it's only in the name of Jesus Christ that we gather for worship. So, so there wasn't this idea that you could worship in this place or this place. Go back to Joshua 22, since I messed up my reference for, for that in between, but you get the idea of what's, what's going on there. Deuteronomy 12. Oh, well, thank you for that. So if you take the two and the one, you flip it around, and you don't type it in incorrectly in your notes, you get the reference. Thanks for that. Appreciate the rescue there. Okay, so Deuteronomy 12, transpose those numbers, and you get the same story. Um, I like that reference in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews says, in some place it's been said, uh, when, you can't, when you know something is in the Bible but you can't remember where it's said, don't feel bad because the author of Hebrews said some place it has been said, and then he just references what the Scripture says. So that's how most of us memorize Scripture. I know it's in there somewhere. I just don't know, I just don't know where it is. Um, okay, Joshua 22, verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows, let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made, a made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, between our generations after us, that we actually do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children, you have no portion in the Lord. Verse 28. So we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we would just say, behold, a copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifices, but to be a witness between us and you. 
Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So verse 30. When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas the son of Eleazar the priest said to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. It's such an interesting story, the way that that plays out. The reason the people on the east, these tribes, had established this altar was they knew the Jordan River, in our minds, is just a little stream or a line on a piece of paper. But for these people, it was going to separate how they did life. They were going to be living in a different place. And if their kids grew up and felt separated from the people in the west, and the people in the west said, no, we're really the people of Israel you guys over there don't really matter. You're on the east. This altar was going to be that unifying factor. And what happens is the primary purpose of this story is to point again to the need for this passionate faithfulness to the Lord, that we are going to be faithful to the Lord, and we are going to pass that on generation after generation. A secondary lesson is just so obvious here. What happens when there's a misunderstanding about something that has, has gone on? Thankfully, Thankfully, Phineas doesn't strike too quickly in this situation because we've seen what happens in Numbers 25 when Phineas is, is ready to strike. But he hears them out and realizes, oh wait, they did not intend by this action what I thought they intended by this action. We need to remain unified. They want to remain unified. And so what could have been a misunderstanding that was going to cause a lot of bloodshed and trouble actually becomes a unifying witness of, no, we really are together. We're, we're in this. We're committed to the Lord together. And that's how this, this altar uh, begins to function for the people. So that's, that's 22. Um, really neat story that's, that's too quickly sometimes skipped over in the, in the Old Testament there. All right, let's do 23. In 23, uh, you get here where it says, 23 verse 1. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, so there's summoned again, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years. Joshua has said this before, we've, we've talked about that, but here he is again. Verse 3. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes, those nations that remain, along with all the nations that have already cut off from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. Okay, not spending too much time on this because we've seen this over and over in Joshua, but don't miss the change in the verb tense. In verse 3, you have seen. So he's pointing them back and saying, you've seen God do all of these things. You've seen the way he's worked. Verse 5, the Lord your God will push them out. We'll continue to do that. This theme that runs throughout the book of Joshua 
the God who has been faithful in the past is the same God who will be faithful in the future. The God who has seen you up to this time, you've seen his power, you've seen his presence, you've seen his comfort, that is the same God who will keep every one of his promises for the future. He will be with you, he was with you then, he will be with you in the time to come. Um, I know for Amanda and I and our marriage, and granted we don't have just a whole lot of years under our belt, but the things we've done and the moves we've made, this is a theme that we probably come back to in our marriage more than any other theme. God, you carried us through all of those things. Then we get up to a new struggle. Oh, man, what are we going to do? Well, like if he was faithful there, you mean he's not going to be faithful now? He's not going to? No, he was. You have seen, he will do. You have seen, he will do. Faithful in the past is the same God who will be faithful in the future. And so Joshua is, is rehearsing that idea for them. Verse 6, then he gets to a therefore. Faithful in the past, faithful in the future, therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. Just, just super quick before we read that. This is the same idea that we saw in Joshua 22. Commended, then commanded. 23, reminded of his faithfulness, then commanded to act. God doesn't say, do this, and then I'll be faithful. He says, I'm faithful, do this. Trust, then obey. Granted, that, that can, be, can be misused, but it's always trust in my character, obey because I'm good, and because I will take care of you, and I will guide you. Uh, okay, let's go back. I cut us off in the middle there. Verse 7, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Verse 12. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they'll become a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Unfortunately, that becomes a prophecy of the exile uh, that that would happen. And, and you see that theme kind of running through the uh, through the Old Testament, but God continues even after the exile to keep his perfect promise. Verse 14, now I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Well, in a lot of words to say I'm about to die. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. If you're a Bible underliner, Joshua 23, 14 is a famous verse to, uh, to underline and, and memorize this idea that not one word is filled of all the good things the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass, not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things. That doesn't get underlined as much. but <laughs> um, So the Lord your God will bring upon you all the evil things until he's destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and you shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given you. 
Um, so there's no celebrating the blessings of God while not at the same time realizing that God is perfectly just. <laughs> the God who blesses and saves is the same God who enacts judgment um, against sin and against rebellion. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's do... Let's read the beginning of 24, and then we're going to come back to 24 next week as part of, as part of Ash Wednesday, because we don't have time, I don't think, to do it justice. But Okay, let's start 24. 24.1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. Okay, Shechem, very key reference here. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. What you're going to find, and I've said it a hundred times and I'll say it a thousand more, one of the things I love, love, love about Scripture, and it's my go-to for why I believe above everything else that's the Word of God, is the way that the story connects together, how it's all perfectly tied together, one divine author using all these authors to tie the story together. This reference to Shechem here is not accidental. It's tying back to something. Genesis 12 God calls Abram, tell, let's just start in verse 1, it's better. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord told him. Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, this is in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. God's calling of Abram to establish them in the land is going to be carried out at the very end of Joshua as you see them gathered back there at Shechem at the end of Joshua's time. One other place to look is in uh, Genesis chapter 35. Genesis 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel or Bethel, and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So at Shechem is the place where God establishes the covenant with Abram. He solidifies it with Jacob as they put away the foreign gods. And then you get to Joshua 24 and you have Joshua gathering all the tribes of Israel to Shechem. Then look at 24.15. It's the last thing we're going to look at. 24.15, or 24.14. 
Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Joshua 24, 14. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you can see the tie that goes from Genesis 12 through Genesis 35, and then it's finally culminated here at Joshua 24, but Shechem is the key that holds those stories together. And so Joshua is saying, you've been called to faithfulness to the Lord, put away all the foreign gods, put all the, way, all the other ways of worship, and give yourself fully to the God who has rescued you, provided for you, been faithful to you, and brought you to this time. All right, let's pray together, and we'll wrap up. Father, thank you for the way that you put together uh, your scripture to be able to, to speak to us, to show us the story of your plan for your people. Have you created us? You called us together. You've been gracious and faithful to us. You provided everything that we need. And Father, we know in our own hearts that temptation to wander, that temptation to go away after other idols, after other ways, but God, I pray that as we see your word, as we hear your word, that we would say that we are going to serve you completely. We are going to serve you only. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the forgiveness and the hope that we have in Christ. God, more than anything, let us be able to share that story, share that hope with the world around us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.